The studio was filled with the rich odor of roses, and when the light summer wind stirred amidst the trees of the garden, there came through the open door the heavy scent of the lilac, or the more delicate perfume of the pink flowering thorn. <sighs> Sorry, I'm, <sighs> I'm allergic to bullshit. You're listening to Outside of a Dog, where we decide whether great literature is actually any good. Hello and welcome to Outside of a Dog, where this week we're discussing The Picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde. You, you might ask yourself, who are we? <laughs> my name is Jonas. I'm just lounging here on my divan wearing a silk bathrobe, smoking an opiated cigarette and looking utterly, utterly ravishing. And I'm Christian and I'm just rattling off 100 almost that are so witty that you could... I don't know. See how witty he is. Extremely. Such a witty guy. And we're talking about a very witty guy. And quite appropriately, we're talking about him because we are both, excitingly, in Dublin. Yay! Um, And as a matter of fact, we're quite close to where he was born. It's like a five minutes walk just up the road. Uh, We're quite close to the beautiful, beautiful statue of him. We're quite close to his university. So we have Oscar on our mind and we're discussing the picture of Dorian Gray. Oscar Wilde was born in 1854 here in Dublin, just a two-minute walk up the road from where we are in Goldsmith Hall here. But he didn't stay in Dublin for all of his life. As a matter of fact, when he was 23, he moved on to Oxford and from there to London, and he became a brilliant playwright, most of all, really. He wrote several comedies, wrote a quite scandalous play about Salome as well. But he published one novel in 1890, The Picture of Dorian Gray, quite scandalous in itself as well. Also a great success, and for another five years, Oscar was the talk of the town as a successful playwright, socialite, wit, and all-around celebrity, really. You cannot say it any differently. Until he stumbled over a scandal, because it turned out that he had a love affair with a younger man, even though he was married and had two sons. This other man was Lord Alfred Douglas, the son of the Marquess of Queensbury, a powerful man in London at the time. And so Wilde was involved in a libel lawsuit against the Marquess of Queensbury, which he lost, and in turn he was prosecuted for being homosexual. As a matter of fact, he was the first person to be prosecuted as a homosexual in the courts in Britain. And indeed, he was sentenced to five years of hard labor. He only served two and a half of those, but still it broke him. He developed a chronic ear infection whilst in prison, which then spread to his brain, and he died in the year 1900 at the age of 46. A short life, you might say quite a tragic life, but a life lived for art, literature and beauty. The picture of Dorian Gray was still published at the height of Wilde's popularity. The titular hero, Dorian Gray, is a beautiful young man who dazzles everyone who meets him, especially famous artist Basil Hallward, who is so infatuated with Dorian that he paints a portrait, but also Basil's friend, Lord Henry Wotton, who is something of a scandalous character, 
famous for his seeming lack of morality. And he tempts and seduces Dorian in a certain way, telling him that with his beauty, he doesn't have to care about what other people think and that he can live a life of sensuality and beauty, more or less. And Dorian actually starts following Henry's advice, especially when he notices that the picture that Basil has painted of him seems to have magic qualities. The picture ages instead of himself. So no matter which extreme depravities Dorian goes through, the picture takes the brunt while he still stays young and beautiful and seemingly pure. Character-wise, he isn't so pure. He, for example, breaks the heart of a young actress called Sybil Vane, who then commits suicide. He commits many other atrocious deeds. But in the end, his fate catches up with him. He curses the portrait that had brought so many horrible things into his life and stabs it and, in the end, basically kills himself. As Jonas has mentioned, this work has been quite scandalous. So scandalous that Wilde himself saw to it that in the second edition of the novel, an introduction was added, a collection of aphorisms basically defending the freedom of the author and proclaiming that all art is quite useless. So formulating the famous motto of the Fond de Siècle that art is only good for art's sake. But that is, I think, a very good introduction to discussing the picture of Dorian Gray, because Wilde is seen as the uncrowned king of aestheticism, this movement that saw mainly beauty as the most important thing, and other things such as virtue or morality as less important to the effect of an artwork. And there are some hints that actually the picture of Dorian Gray might go in a similar direction. So let us talk about aestheticism, this ambiguous, nebulous movement, which, unlike other literary movements, doesn't have a manifesto, except maybe the preface to the picture of Dorian Gray, arguably. A year ago, I was a teaching assistant at Heidelberg University, and one of the assigned texts that my students read was An Ideal Husband by Oscar Wilde, which actually happens to be my favorite play, so I thought that was great. But they were very confused by Wilde's ideas about beauty. They were very confused by his conviction, which wasn't at all unusual, but maybe a bit old-fashioned in Victorian times, that goodness and virtue were related to outer beauty. And when they saw a picture of Oscar Wilde with his longish hair and his flat oval face, sorry, but it is true, they thought, well, isn't he a bit of a hypocrite? saying that beauty is so important. Christian, is that what aestheticism is actually about? Is it actually about looking really, really good, as Zoolander might say? In short, of course. But no, actually, that's not true. Aestheticism is more about a system of values. It rejects the Victorian traditional values that literature and art have to be there to kind of form the character to make you into a better citizen. What aestheticism wants is create art that has no further meaning, that is just beautiful, that just pleases. And this beauty is enough of a value, is enough of a reason for existing and for creating art in the first place. So when Wilde says that art is quite useless, he sees it as a good thing, that art is not there to make you into a better person or to make you into a better citizen. It is not necessarily that art has to be useless, but art can be useless. Wilde and other aestheticists wanted to free art from the constraints of having to be useful. And 
instead wanted to be able to just create something beautiful because isn't that enough? Some of the statements that Wilde makes in this preface are actually still seem kind of controversial even in our days. For example, when he says, there is no such thing as a moral or an immoral book. Books are well written or badly written, that is all. And that would of course come to haunt him in his trial for being a homosexual where he was confronted with some of the things that he wrote in the picture of Dorian Gray, which were used as proof against him. So apparently the law in Britain had a different opinion and were of the opinion that there is such a thing as an immoral book. Arguably, we're still of that opinion today, aren't we? We are. And actually, to a certain degree, I would even agree with that statement. I mean, the statement against Wilde, because I would actually say that he isn't quite correct. Because to me, Dorian Gray is actually a highly moral book. I think there is a discrepancy between the very witty aphorisms of the introduction and what is actually in the novel. Because what you can find in the novel is, I would say, a very clear moral judgment on how Dorian behaves, how he should behave and how he doesn't behave. It's as ever with Wilde. He is such a nebulous, difficult-to-grasp figure that always plays games. He was very adept at putting up a kind of facade, at seeming like something that he maybe wasn't quite. And that makes it difficult for us to this day to really get a grip on him. He, he was a showman, in a quite literal sense of the word. He was a showman who managed to create this image of himself for the world to see. And I think a lot of people still only see that which he wanted them to see, which he would be glad about. Famously, Wilde said that all of the three main characters in the novel are basically reflections of himself. That Dorian is who he would like to be, that Lord Henry, the amoral aestheticist, is how people see him, that in actuality that he is most likely like Basil, who is victim of his infatuation with beauty, but who is deeply moral and suffers for it in the end. So that is a very interesting self-assessment there. And I think that makes it clear that aestheticism, at least in this book and in Wilde's perspective, is not just about superficial beauty that has no moral value at all, but rather that beauty has moral responsibility as well, that art has a certain moral responsibility, however, one that is freed from traditional values that you might associate with what is useful or good. I would definitely agree. Basically, ever since I have read Oscar Wilde at the age of 17, I have sort of identified but also sort of struggled with these two concepts, aestheticism and dandyism. I have come to the conclusion that indeed, if you are simply a hedonist who lives for enjoyment and looking fabulous and who does not care at all about morality, then you're not getting it. And the person who sort of embodies that in our age is, I think, the horribly vile person, Milo Yiannopoulos, uh, who gallivants through talk shows looking all dressed up and extravagant and spews the most ugly rhetoric and vile hatred that you can imagine. But it doesn't matter, really, because, you know, nothing really matters, does it? And that is something that I would like to disassociate myself, but also Oscar Wilde heavily from. Keep your hands off him. Yes, and I think there comes into play what you said, that Wilde can be a showman, but I think he is especially a showman when it comes to his plays. The dandy characters in his plays 
are more obviously these witticism spouting machines that seem to represent at least the dandy as a facade. And Dorian Gray makes it much easier actually to grasp the morality. I think here the prose form portraying different perspectives and not just looking for the next punchline really helps him to Mm. get across this more, I don't want to say serious, I don't want to say complex, but at least more obviously ambivalent picture of aestheticism. It is a kind of psychological realism that he writes in. So we gain insight into the inner lives of Dorian, but also of other characters sometimes. And uh, we see their fears, their doubts. And also he follows Dorian for, I think, close to a decade. And that is just not possible in a typical theater play, really. So, as you said, the prose form really works in favor of, I would actually call it complexity, I think. It's ironic that Wilde really lays it all out that he says, ah, yes, I'm all about clothes and the facade and beautiful objects and nothing any deeper. But then he writes this incredibly introspective and thoughtful novel, really almost throwing it in people's faces, but some still don't seem to get it. I think it's also ironic that you mention realism, because let's face it, this is still a supernatural tale. The supernaturalism is not as clear. There's no clear explanation to why the portrait ages instead of Dorian, why Dorian seems to have eternal youth, but it's still there. And obviously, no big surprise. I mean, I've written a PhD thesis about it, blah, blah, blah. Oh, have you? I need to mention the Gothic. Dorian Gray is often seen as one of the most important works of the second big wave of Gothic works, together with Jekyll and Hyde or Dracula. So the farthest Jekyll Gothic. And Dorian Gray is very much a part of that. On the one hand, because the character of Dorian Gray has the same kind of iconic quality that Jekyll and Hyde or Dracula have, it's no surprise that Dorian Gray also features in Penny Dreadful, that TV yeah. show that collects all of these characters, basically. And he is the worst he part is of the it. Worst. Because He's like definitely the worst. Because like every visual medium, Penny Dreadful gets Dorian Gray wrong and casts this heroine-chic, brunette, kind of brooding guy... And you just know he's trouble when he walks in. Get it? Yes. Yeah. And he's completely miscast and he is horrible. And um, Spider-Man. Turn off the dark. He's also Spider-Man. Is he? Yeah, he's played Spider-Man. Anyway. The best actor to play Dorian Gray would be the kid who played Tommen on Game of Thrones. Uh, The boy king who, with his angelic cherub-like face and his blonde hair, looks so nice and so, like, you know, he couldn't hurt a fly. But actually, he's rotten to the core. Uh, he would be good, but, uh, well, that's not happening. But still, there will be other versions of Dorian Gray. There is this yeah, iconic quality about this idea. And that is something that seems to be part of the Gothic, that there are mm. certain fears or desires mixed with the fears that are connected to these figures. I mean, in this case, for example, fairly obviously eternal youth and how horrible that would actually be. A kind of Faustian pact with the devil, even though it's not the actual devil. Although, who knows? Mm, Henry... Which is actually something that I really like, that it is not explained. Well, maybe Henry is the devil, but it's never explicitly mentioned, unlike in Dracula, where we complained that it is so beaten to death that he goes so much into detail and ah and this is how you defeat the vampire and uh, then you have all this tedious description and here it keeps its mystery 
Which is what the Gothic is all about, isn't it? Mystery, intrigue, unknown quantities. Yes, and I think that also is part of the uh, great idea with the portrait, that the portrait is this kind of doppelganger figure, and doppelgangers are an intrinsic part of the Gothic tradition. Frankenstein, Jekyll and Hyde, and so on. These kind of dark figures that represent our deepest fears, but also, as I said, the deepest desires. Coming back to Henry for just a moment, I like this ambivalence but there's also a great scene later on when we see that henry has aged and he's become less of a tempter he's almost kind of afraid of what dorian has become or he doesn't understand him anymore and i think that's a nice touch to kind of again humanize these characters to take them away from just being gothic stereotypes still dorian gray works very well as a gothic tale especially because it mixes this psychological realism with the unsaid things, the unconscious fears. And one of these unconscious fears that is actually very explicit when we talk about Wilde's work, one of these fears seems to be the fear of being discovered as someone or something you don't want society to see. Whereas in Dracula, we have this anxiety about sexuality, but then this obsession with sexuality. Here, we have a very different text by a very different author, although both Dublin boys. Yeah, it is this leading of a double life that uh, Dorian really gives himself into his hedonism, which is a bit of a problematic stereotype about uh, gay people, to say the least. But that really comes from this time. That really comes from Oscar Wilde himself to an extent as well. And it comes from this need of being clandestine in illegality. And so what, what could you do but basically in the limited spaces and time that you have to get as much enjoyment out of them as possible? It is not very direct in at least most of the versions in Dorian Gray. But in 2011, the uncensored one was recovered, basically, where it is a lot more explicit that this is a lot about sexuality and homosexuality, and that Henry is this tempter figure who who sort of lures the young Dorian away from a virtuous path. And it is quite interesting that this seems to be quite agonizing about uh, homosexuality. It's it's not a happy book. It is It is a struggle. It is about sort of being trapped in the closet by society, but also being unhappy about what you are, isn't it? Definitely. I think it's interesting that seemingly the most obvious homosexual relationship is the one between Henry and Dorian. And later on, that Dorian's double life and the unspeakable things he does seem to be coded as unspeakable sexual things, unspeakable homosexual things. But still, with the limited space that Wilde has, he adds another dimension to that. Again, coming to the character of Basil, because Basil, to me at least, is the most explicitly homosexual character, even more explicitly so than Henry or Dorian, because he is quite clearly in love with Dorian. Tragically, because Dorian then doesn't want anything to do with him anymore, and in the end kills him. And that adds another dimension, that homosexuality in this clandestine world is not just about illicit pleasures, about unspeakable things going on in the darkness, that it is love, and it's a tragic love, and it's an unrequited love, 
And that, to me, is really, really remarkable. That Wilde goes beyond the coding of homosexuality in a certain way and that he shows, well, this is a story about looking at someone and feeling attracted to them and then finding out, well, there is a difference between what's on the outside and the inside. And that, from an aestheticist, at least at first glance, is all about the outside. That is really something. And I think that really brings together this idea of aestheticism masterfully brings it together with the treatment of sexuality. We talked a lot about Wilde already, maybe more so than about the book, but it is really unavoidable with Wilde. We generally try to stay away from talking about the authors too much, death of the author and all that, but especially with Wilde that is not really possible, you know. He leaves such a strong imprint on everything that he writes, really. I think certainly um, out of his fiction emerges this picture of an immensely intelligent, uh, immensely reflected and tragic person who struggled with what he was and wanted to be or did not want to be throughout his life. And we all know then that tragically it ended horribly. Or at least that's the story that we sort of have. Maybe that is also colored by his own myth-making, to an extent at least. George Bernard Shaw certainly didn't seem to think so. Uh, he sided with Bosey, with Lord Alfred Douglas, and said that the whole trial was his tragedy and Wilde's comedy, which I find a bit rich coming from a guy who wasn't in prison at the time. But anyway, Wilde is a monument. Wilde is a giant. And that is why we will not be done talking about him with this episode. Instead, in two weeks' time, we will have a mini-sode on Oscar Wilde, and especially on Oscar Wilde's fairy tales, specifically The Happy Prince and The Selfish Giant. So if you want more Wilde talk, come back for that. But I think we have discussed the most important aspects of the picture of Dorian Gray now. We've talked about the aestheticism of it, the morality of it, the gothic side of it, and about homosexuality in the context of the picture of Dorian Gray. The basic question we have is, is this actually a good book? Should you actually read this? Christian, what do you say? I think you can't not read it. Dorian Gray is one of those books that I reread and always find something new. I think we've discussed maybe the most important things, but there's so many other things that we haven't addressed. We, we could have talked about fiction in the picture of Dorian Gray, how he talks about fiction as this vehicle of enjoyment and finding deeper meaning. We could have talked about society, which plays a major role. We could have talked about the maybe slightly misogynist treatment of Sybil Vane, who's just this kind of victim that doesn't understand what is going on. Oh, you mean the air-headed actress who's simply not good enough to be with a special hero boy. Exactly. And then has to kill herself. All these things just make it clear that Dorian Gray is an amazing book. It is an, a book that is still very relevant, that you can still find enjoyment. And I think it's even quite suspenseful. There is something of a crime story, kind of a horror story going on. And all that combined with the complexity makes this a, a really great read. I would definitely agree. You should read this for the themes but even if you're just in it for the great, yeah, like you said, thriller crime story of Sybil's brother trying to find the man who drove his sister to suicide and how Dorian escapes from this threatening 
violent situation. If you just read it for the murder mystery of Basil Hallward, if you just read it for the sheer thrill of the supernatural horror of it, you will definitely find something for you in the picture of Dorian Gray. Plus, it is, as we said, a kind of introduction to Wilde's psychology, Wilde's perspective, and maybe helps us to kind of understand this monument or giant in English-speaking literature a bit better. So, two ringing endorsements of the picture of Dorian Gray. But, of course, we cannot leave you with just one recommendation. We have more. Christian, what should accompany the picture of Dorian Gray in your opinion? When I thought about this, I thought about, well, is there a good gothic doppelganger story that would kind of accompany this. And I thought a bit more, and what I wanted to focus on was the moral ambivalence of this book and of Dorian himself. And I think there's one novel and one incredible character that comes very close to the same kind of position, and that is Tom Ripley in Patricia Highsmith's The Talented Mr. Ripley. It is also a story about beauty, about morality, about murder, about doppelgangers, about homosexuality that is hidden and implicit. And it is an amazing novel with a character that is so evil and still relatable that you cannot help but hate and love Tom Ripley at the same time. Also, it has an amazing film version with Matt Damon and Jude Law. I think this is the perfect companion piece in a more modern version and maybe even more amoral than Dorian Gray is. I'm going back to our seventh episode, uh, released two years ago now, on American Psycho, where I recommended Dorian by Will Self, an updated version of the picture of Dorian Gray, which sets it in the AIDS epidemic in London in the 80s and 90s. And it is the sort of missing link between Dorian Gray and Patrick Bateman. Again, another very charming superficially attractive boy next door who couldn't do anything evil, obviously, could he? So I would like to reiterate that recommendation. It's a flawed book and by far not as great as The Picture of Dorian Gray is, but what is? But I have two more recommendations. One generally concerns Wild, which is Wild, the film starring Stephen Fry about his life. It is the rare biopic that manages to be more than that because it fuses his fiction with his life. Throughout the, uh, the film, he tells the story of the selfish giant, this fairy tale to his sons. We see glimpses of his plays. We see snippets from the picture of Dorian Gray read out. And you see this tragic life story, which is in the background of everything that he wrote, really. And once you know that, you, I think, will gain a deeper appreciation of him. And also, Stephen Fry is great in it, as is, again, Jude Law as Lord Alfred Douglas. But my second recommendation is a bit more indirect, you could say. When I thought about recommendations for this, I really struggled until I thought, what is the most interesting part of this for me? And for me, it is this struggle between hedonism, outer beauty and enjoyment and morality, on the other hand. So I thought about works that deal with that. And I'm going to recommend another film by Sofia Coppola, Marie Antoinette which is a ridiculous movie. Um, believe me, as a historian, I'm forced to say it is completely bonkers. But it is also, in my opinion, completely brilliant. Because Coppola doesn't do the biopic thing of simply staging 
scenes in beautiful rooms and beautiful clothes. Instead, she communicates a feeling. She communicates a topic. And she communicates this young girl being lost in the world and being thrown into this luxury of the French court and simply losing herself in it. But then the real world catches up with her when the revolution breaks out. It's based on Antonia Fraser's biography of Marie Antoinette, which basically paints her as this sympathetic character. And even if you don't like Marie Antoinette, or if you think that the film is completely ridiculous, which I agree with, it's still a great meditation on hedonism, excess, but the morality that unquestionably always comes after it. So that was our Irish episode on the picture of Dorian Gray. But what do you think? Do you think that there is another work that is much better and much more complex dealing with the same topics? Well, if you want to tell us, please do so. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter at Outside of a Hound. And you can write an email to outsideofadogcast at gmail.com. You can also leave a review for us on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate us and subscribe. So come back in two weeks' time for our minisode on Oscar Wilde and his fairy tales. But Christian, what is the next... What are we going to read for our next full episode? I can't seem to leave the Gothic alone or the other way around. This time we will actually read a book that we wanted to read, I think, for a very long time. So next time it's going to be Wuthering Heights by Charlotte Bronte. It's me, I'm Cathy, I've come home. So cold, let me in your window. Oh, and then we just fade out. <laughs> Thank you very much for listening. For more information, visit outsideofadogcast.com. I want to talk about, um, shouldn't it be called The Picture of Dorian Gay? <laughs> oh, God. For further use. <laughs>